I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 73. And there's also an outline in the worship folder, so you can take that out and follow along with where we go. So, prosperity uh, is defined as the condition of being successful uh, or thriving, uh, especially economic well-being. The dictionary points out that the Latin word also means fortunate and says that prosperity often has an element of luck. So at the top of your outline, we have this. This psalm is the account of an almost despairing search as the author Asaph focuses on the prosperity of those who did not follow God. Uh, Psalm 73 has the kinds of questions in it that also distracted Job. And at the end, those questions no longer seem unanswerable. And the psalmist makes an amazing discovery that we'll read about and look at. The question asked right away is, what does the word prosperous mean to God? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? There's a mission agency that works among uh, Muslims and uh, <clears throat> Hindus in South Asia. And they have a series of questions they ask once a person has trusted Christ as their savior and are considering baptism. And here are the questions they use as a reality check for these new believers in Jesus who might experience these things when they go public with a baptism. First question is, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you and forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? You know, for a lot of people around the world, those are very pertinent questions. Maybe not so much for us, but I think it is a good reminder to us of what it means to follow Jesus, maybe in most of the world. Psalm 73 serves as a good reality check, this is on your outline, for all of us that will bring us spiritual stability, that will bring us strength. Let's read our passage, Psalm 73. Follow along in your Bible. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? 
Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. This is God's word for us this morning. Are there times that you think life just isn't fair? I think we all question that. and We've asked that question at times. There is a place for us to go to reframe our lives, all that's going on in our lives, all that's going on in the world. And that is to God's communication to us, his word. God corrects our thinking when we get our signals crossed. That happens sometimes. So this psalm was written by Asaph, a godly man, a Levite who served as the worship leader in the temple uh, and was the author of about a dozen different psalms. Uh, we read more about him in First and Second Chronicles. But it seems like his perception uh, got confused, and he asks the question that maybe you've asked before, why are the wicked successful, and why do the righteous suffer? In Asaph's mind is this, God is supposed to bless us as God fears. Why do we struggle so much with, with health and with money and with relationships, while unbelievers don't seem to? Verse 1 serves as a, a great introduction and a summary statement and basically a theological truth all in one. Surely good, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, the phrase pure in heart in verse 1 means that, that it's more than just that they were clean-minded. It it's basically uh, means a total commitment to God. Their hearts were pure. No matter what was going on, uh, in their lives, uh, their, their attitude of their heart was right. It was pure before God. And this is the premise that we have to always keep in mind that he gives us in verse 1. And that is that God is good. Surely, God is good to Israel. 
And so you have this on your outline. When Asaph puts the surely in front of the phrase, God is good, he's saying God and God alone is good no matter what might happen. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, we can always go back and fall back on the truth that God is good. That truth never changes. And so Asaph is asking the question, if God is good, shouldn't we at least have more blessings than those who don't care about God at all? And then in verses 2 through 14, uh, we see this crisis of faith as Ahaz, uh, Asaph looks at life, first of all, number one, from the human perspective. In verses 2 to 14. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold. So Asaph confesses that he was close to losing his confidence in God's goodness because of three things that he saw around him. And here are the three things. The first one is envy in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word arrogant comes from a root word that means a loud and clear noise, like the braying of a donkey. It's someone who toots their own horn very loudly, very frequently. So notice that Asaph isn't upset with these egotistical people. He's jealous of them. He wants what they have. You know, the word prosperity is maybe kind of what was confusing to Asaph because the word prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, Asaph sees it as unfair that God is giving his peace, his shalom, his physical well-being, all the things that shalom means to unbelievers, things that were promised to covenant people. We think of shalom as, as peace, but it's really so much more. The idea in Hebrew is harmony and wholeness and completeness and tranquility. You know, we think of Isaiah 26.3 says, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. You know what the word in Hebrew is for perfect peace? It's shalom, shalom. Peace squared. Peace to the infinite power. That's perfect peace. So, as Christians, we would say that those things happen when we're in right relationship with God. That's when we have actual shalom. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a guy named Justin Wren, who was an all-American wrestler in college. Uh, he easily moved into the world of mixed martial arts after college, but as his success and popularity skyrocketed, so did his addictions to cocaine and alcohol and narcotics. And his life hit rock bottom when he was kicked off of one of the world's best fight teams for drug use. Wren wrote this, he said, my childhood dream had turned into a living nightmare. But when everyone else had written me off as beyond redemption, one friend, Jeff, refused to walk away. He would call me daily to talk with me and encourage me and invite me to Christian events. I finally went with him on a men's retreat where I heard the gospel and opened my life up to Christ and found the peace of God. A peace like I'd never known before in my life. That is shalom. That's what you've experienced when you have 
received Christ into your life, when you've made your life right with God, it's a shalom, a peace of God. Asaph thinks that the unbeliever has no need for God because he's full of, and this is the, the next thing on your outline, he's full of pride in verses four through 12. The problem is that he's looking at the present and he's forgetting about the future. In verses four and five, Asaph wonders why life seems so good for those who have nothing to do with God. Look at verse four. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. I I think of this sometimes when I'm on the freeway and uh, my little Honda and somebody zips by, like I'm going the speed limit and there some Maserati from 2022 goes zipping by at 100, like I'm standing still. And I think, well, how do they get to do this? Why, why do they, they never get a ticket. I never see them pulled over. It just, I mean, that's, that's, that's what happened. Look at verse seven. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Asaph seems to imply that those without God seem to have all the time and all the money and all the influence they want. You know, I think most people's lives look good from a distance. They, they don't, look better because they are better, they look better because we don't know their pain. When you get to know people well, you find out that everyone has pain. We can put up a good front, we can look okay on the outside, but everyone struggles. The unbelievers make fun of God's people in verse eight and even speak out against God in the next verses, nine through 11. Look at verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice With arrogance they threaten oppression, their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And then in verse 12 he gives this summary statement basically of what he's been saying. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. Now, I was talking with someone once who was giving away things from their uh, parents' uh, mansion, and they said, you know what? All these things are just really a burden. Don't ever want for all of these things. They're more hassle than they are joy. They just bring burdens. You know, maybe some are jealous of those who seem to live life without boundaries and just do whatever they want to do. But this is not where Asaph ends up. So in addition to envy and pride, Asaph was also focused on self-pity. That's the next one. Self-pity. Starting in verse 13, after he's been looking outward, Asaph looks inward. And, And he's tempted to believe there's no advantage to holy living. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. So from a human perspective, there doesn't seem to be much reward for righteous living. That's what Asaph is struggling with. One paraphrase of verse 13 says, have I been wasting my time? Why take all the trouble to be pure? And then in verse 14 is really where he turns to self-pity. And he describes his feelings. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. He's saying the problems just keep coming. They don't stop. They just keep piling up. And he doesn't want his confusion to harm those who are the spiritual children, his spiritual children, the people that he knows of. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
If I had spoken out like that, I would have, been, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Proverbs says something pretty similar. It says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Uh, you know, Asaph was trying to hold back, couldn't hold back. He seems overwhelmed because he couldn't figure this out on his own. Our sin causes all of us to make us the central part of our lives. You know, I have four adult children who are all married. Uh, I remember when they were young, though, and, and we have two beautiful grandkids, and as beautiful as they are, and as much as we enjoyed our kids, <clears throat> they're sinners, like us. And uh, the kids don't want to be told what to eat. They don't want to be told what to wear. They don't want to be told when to go to bed. They don't want to be told how to treat others. They want to be the center of their own little world. They want to write their own set of rules, if you will. And they're shocked when you, as a parent, dare to tell them what to do. But it isn't just children. We tend to do the exact same thing. We want more control in our lives than we're wise enough or strong enough spiritually to handle. And in our self-focus, we're, we're motivated by our wants, by our needs, by our feelings, and we tend to be more aware of what we don't have than the blessings that God has given us, the things that we do have. And then on top of it, we tend to be scorekeepers. We're constantly comparing our pile of stuff to the pile of others. We pity ourselves for what we don't have. Envy is always selfish. So what changes our perspective? The, the transformation in the psalmist's outlook seems to start in verse 17. That's where, and this is number two on your outline, worship changes everything. Look at verse 17. Until, or till, I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. You might want to circle that word till or until in your Bible, uh, until in your Bible. Because uh, that's really a key word here in the psalm. As one paraphrase puts it, when I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood the whole picture. So that word until is where the light breaks. And what changes things for Asaph was entering the sanctuary and gaining a fresh perspective, a fresh vision, if you will, of God's love and of, of God's justice. In worship, he remembered that a holy God will not let sin go unpunished. And this is something we need to learn today and be reminded of. When we question what God is doing in the world, we need to fall on our knees and meditate on him and who he is. In his word, it describes who God is. We meditate on that. It raises our eyes above where we're looking at everything that's going on in the world and onto him. And when we do that, we're reminded that, that there is a final judgment coming. Wrongs will be made right. Evil will be avenged. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And the good that we've done will be justified. And this is why we need to be in the habit of regularly going before God. Not just, I mean, we do this, we gather together corporately, 
We have this family time together where corporately our eyes are lifted up, but we also can't rely just on that. We have to be spending time alone with God on a regular basis, reading his word, talking with him in prayer. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. It may seem like the wicked have everything together, but there will be a final judgment. We come into the sanctuary and we sing these great worship songs to the Lord. It raises our eyes. We hear from the word of God and it raises our eyes. You know, we're talking about driving on the freeway. You know, if, you're, if you are on the freeway and you're in a lot of traffic, you might listen for a traffic report. And you hear them and they're, they're speaking from, you can tell they're in an airplane or a, a helicopter. And we're listening to them because we know there may be alternate routes and they may just know better an alternate route that they can see from their perspective from a helicopter or, or an airplane. And that's what happens when we spend private time with God That's what happens when we gather together on Sunday corporately. We worship together. We listen to God's word. It raises our eyes. It gives us a higher perspective. And we're reminded about the way things really are. Reminded that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. That he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is about how faith in God wins. When we try to judge God just by our own experiences, we never have the entire picture. Everything is put into the right perspective when we spend time in the presence of God. The psalmist started with his eyes on the world, and then there's this shift And he puts his eyes on on the Lord and that changes everything. And if we don't do this, we will default to looking from a human perspective. And the, the result is we'll end up bitter. We'll end up jealous. When we do worship God and listen to what his word says, we're reminded of his character. We're reminded of his love. We're reminded of his power. And we see the judgment of sin and especially the solution that he offers. And it was only when Asaph focused on God that he saw the sweetness of God's grace and God's mercy in his own life. And so when we look at life from an eternal perspective, the passage says that we see three things. And this is reality from God's point of view. We see, first of all, the ruin of the wicked in verses 18 to 20. The ruin of the wicked. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. After he sees the whole picture, um, Asaph sees that it's the wicked who are on slippery ground, not him. Uh, The word ruin in verse 18 is a place that's completely decimated. Think of uh, the pictures you've seen in the last weeks of you know, places in Florida, or in the last few days of uh, a tornado ripped through places in Texas and Oklahoma, uh, completely decimated. That's the word ruin. When God's judgment comes, unbelievers will be wiped out. Verse 19 says that it's the destiny of those who don't know Christ. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. 
You know, um, one of the great parts of our heritage here is that for many years we had a youth pastor, Pastor Vaughn. Um, I could, many people here who know Vaughn could tell you a lot of stories about Vaughn. Uh, he preached a sermon one time on, uh, on people that he wanted to see go to hell. Now, he was talking about, the first person he mentioned is the senior pastor at the time, Pastor Han. And the reason he said this is because he said if they get a glimpse of hell, they will be more motivated than they have ever been motivated in their life to tell people how they can avoid going to hell. You just need a glimpse. He said, I don't want them to stay there long. I just want them to see it. I want them to get a glimpse. And that's the motivation that we have for sharing Jesus with the people that we love who are around us, who are our family and our friends, who don't know him, who will spend an eternity apart from God in hell if they don't have the blood of Jesus Christ covering their sin. That's the truth. Verse 20 warns us that the people without God may think they're living a dream, but that will eventually turn into a nightmare. They are like a dream when one awakes. Verse 20, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You know, I almost, I did a funeral this last week. Almost every time I do a funeral, I remind people that um, we get it wrong we think this is the land of the living, and when we die, we go to the land of the dead. But the opposite is true. This is the land of the dying. And when we die, we go to the land of the living, where we will spend all of eternity, either in the presence of God in heaven or outside of the presence of God in hell. And that should be so sobering to us. That should, that should motivate. What's the, the motivation for Martha and for Chad, the motivation for, for all of our missionaries, for Kirk and Yolanda, for all of our missionaries, is that people are heading to a Christless eternity unless we give them the good news. But it's not just our missionaries. That's our responsibility with our neighbors and with our friends and our family. You know, the reality of hell is one of the most solemn truths in scripture. Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. It should be the motivation for us. One Christian of the last century commented, he said, the only person I can listen to really preach on hell is D.L. Moody, because I've never heard him talk about it without breaking down and weeping. That's how we should all feel. That's what we would all feel if we had a glimpse of hell. The next thing we see in the passage is that that's a part of worship is Asaph's repentance from his sin. In verses 21 and 22, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. You know, it's important to understand here what exactly repentance is. And I appreciate this quote from Oswald Chambers, and he explains it like this. It is not repentance that saves me. 
Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. It is, my, is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. Think of this. How many of your sins were in the future when Christ died on the cross? All of them. Not just the sins you have committed, not just the sins you've committed today, but the sins that you will commit for the rest of your life. They were all in the future. They're all forgiven on the cross. When I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic, it stands on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. So in these verses, Asaph repents from his self-centeredness. The word grieved in verse 21 is used to describe the expanding nature of yeast. It also describes vinegar. And, and the idea here is that it's used to describe a sour attitude that we have toward God when we look at life through human glasses. And so he's saying, he's saying put on glasses that will allow you to see beyond what is in this world. When Asaph wanted what the wicked had, he was eaten up on the inside. When he was controlled by bitterness, he behaved like an animal. So it's the brute beast in verse 21. You know, one of the things that separates us from animals is that animals can't contemplate the future. And what he was saying is that, man, when, when my eyes were on this world, all I could do is contemplate right here, right now. I was like a brute beast. I wasn't like someone who can contemplate heaven in the future. Another thing we're reminded of in worship and the next thing on your outline is the rewards of the, of the righteous in verse, starting in verse 23. Verse 23 begins with the word yet. And after confessing that he was bitter and ignorant, Asaph immediately recognizes that God has not turned his back on him. And these are, there are a couple, of, and the, 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 I, I love that word yet. Uh, the first things that we need to recognize here is God's presence. Yet I am always with you. God is always with us no matter what we think. His promise in Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's Jesus' promise to us. God is always with us no matter what we're going through. Do you know that? Do you know that he's with you no matter how hard life is for you right now? And the second thing is God's protection. You hold me, verse 23, by my right hand. He holds on to us. We're his. He will never let us go. And then verse 24 describes two more promises from God. His guidance and his glory. Look at, he promises to direct our lives in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. 
while we're here on earth, while we're going through whatever life brings us, he directs us. Psalm 32, 8, he guides us with his eye upon us. And then he takes us to be with him. Afterward, you will take me into glory, to the home that he has prepared for us. You know, the scriptures teach us that death is like going home. Who's afraid to go home? I hope we're not afraid to go home. In John 14, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And he's told them repeatedly that he's going to die. That he's going to leave them. And, and the prospect of that threw the disciples into a panic. And uh, Jesus responds to him. And here's what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you back to be with me that you may also be where I am. That's his promise. And then in verses 25 and 26, Asaph is finally at the point where God wanted him to be from the beginning. And I know that these next two verses are some of your favorite verses. They're the best loved verses in all the Bible for you. Uh, because knowing this was coming, some of you have told me that. These are great verses. Asaph writes, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, maybe the New Testament equivalent of that is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. More Christ. That's what heaven is. More of him. Verses 25 and 26 are words of a man who has learned the secret of contentment. And these are, we talk about that we've called this series Praying the Psalms. These are verses that you can pray for yourself, for others. Lord, I, I want you and only you. I want to desire nothing in this world but you. And Lord, my flesh and my heart are failing me, but you are my strength. You are my portion forever. You know, when you're satisfied with the giver, with God, you have found in him true life, abundant life, eternal life. And if it's true, then your heart will rest only when it's found its rest in him. That's a quote from Augustine, but it's so true. Can you say that this morning and mean that? Verses 25 and 26. Until you can say to God, God, you're all I want because you're all I need, you're always going to wonder why life doesn't seem fair. Is God all you want? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ? Period. No matter what happens to you, no matter what you see in others, are you completely satisfied 
in God. This is what Asaph realizes here. That nothing was more valuable than what he already had in his relationship with God. Do you realize that? The word strength in verse, 30, in verse 26 means rock. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. As a Levite, Asaph knew all about what a portion meant because he was supported. He, his livelihood came from the people of God who came and gave a portion of their income and of their goods and of, of, of what was a part of their life to him, to the Levites. And that's how he lived. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. More importantly, he saw his internal inheritance in God as rock solid. God is his portion. And then finally, we see in worship the responsibility of believers in verse 28. Asaph concludes with these two key responsibilities for all believers. First, he says, we're to stay near God, near, to, near the Lord. Verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Is he your refuge? True joy is found in a close relationship with God. That's why joy is so much deeper than happiness. We can be sad and we can be joyful at the same time. His nearness is good. The idea of good here is it's sweet, it's pleasant. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. How do you come near to God? Well, you begin a relationship with him. You receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's how that begins. But then you, you, you communicate with him like you would to a friend. You, you, you talk to him in prayer. He speaks to you through his word. So you listen to his word. That's how we exercise our faith. That's how we draw near to God. And then our second responsibility is to tell others about Jesus. This is the last phrase of the psalm. I will tell of all your deeds. Once he sees uh, that he, he needs to realign his thinking with who God is, and he sees the destruction of the wicked, he no longer craves what, what's going on around the world. And now he can speak about the Lord. He's motivated to do that. Maybe we don't tell others about Jesus because we want what they have. Or, or maybe more than we want them to have what is ours in Christ, we, we're looking at them and, and their things. But one of the best ways to be motivated to share our faith is to spend time in the presence of God. And then we, we can't help but share our faith with others. Think of the people that are far from God who are your classmates or your, your friends or your neighbors or uh, your family members, <clears throat> people you work with, your coworkers. <clears throat> the ones you might be tempted to be jealous of are the ones who need to be rescued from spending an eternity apart from God. When our perspective shifts from our human understanding of the reality of, of, of to the reality of eternity, we won't be able to be quiet about our faith. We can't sit on the good news while the people around us and the people we love are heading into a Christless eternity. 
That's the motivation of, of all of our missionaries to go. That should be our motivation to talk with our friends, to pray for open doors so that we can keep talking with our friends and have important conversations with them. So how should we see prosperity then from God's point of view? In the end, it's pretty simple. If we have Jesus, we have everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us people who know that we can pray our doubts to you. And we can be people who can encourage other people in their doubts. I pray that the cry of our heart would be the same as Asaph's. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not received you as their Lord and Savior, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would cry out to you in faith right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Alleluia. Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Please take the advantage of being where you're at and introduce yourself to the people around you as well.